Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. What does whiteness mean, and does it matter? And why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. Now, every episode, I'm joined by a guest or two on this occasion who offer unique insights into those questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the authors of a new book which will change the way you think about health. One, a doctor, the other, an economist, who in their latest publication explore the link between health and structural inequality. Dr. Rupa Maria is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and Faculty Director of the Do No Harm Coalition, an organization of health workers committed to structural change to address health problems. Welcome, Dr. Maria. And Raj Patel is a New York Times best-selling author, filmmaker, and academic. He is a research professor in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time. Let's talk about your book, Inflamed. Um, in your book, you look at the colonial legacy of healthcare. I've never read anything quite like it. Um, it's been described in The Guardian as a subversive political analysis, broken into sections that locate the causal origin of disease in the multifunctional spaces around and beyond the individual body, in histories, ecologies, narratives, and dynamics of power. To me, it was an incredible insight into a decolonial critique of modern medicine and approach to medicine really more broadly. I learned a lot about inflammation and how it's connected to many modern diseases which blight our societies, cancer, diabetes, COVID. But I'm really keen to hear how you describe the book. For those of our listeners who haven't read it yet, what is Inflamed about? Oh, thank you, Dr. Patel. <laughs> Good morning from the um, occupied and unceded territory of Huchin, Ohlone territory, what is now called the San Francisco Bay Area, California, where it is six o'clock in the morning. Um, and I'm still getting through my first cup of coffee. Um, this book for me was an opportunity to draw connections, to weave a basket of stories and knowledges um, to have a more holistic understanding of why we are sick and the ways in which we are. Um, and by we, I mean all of humanity who has been impacted through the last um, 600 years of colonial expansion and the spread of the global capitalist project. Why we are sick in the ways we are and why our planet is um, sick in the ways in which uh, the planet is. And so um, that is it, is making those connections very clear. Um, some people I've seen them say, oh, well, this is just a really great metaphor. Um, and we're not speaking on the level of metaphor when we're talking about the inflammation of our soil or our rivers or our water, the, um, the rising temperatures of the planet that we can see it here in California, the air quality has been so bad from these catastrophic wildfires that have occurred 
um, since the original caretakers of this land have been removed. And so if we understand that where we are right now in the state of our bodies and the state of the planet and our societies is a direct outcome of 600 years of um, processes, then we can start to see um, you know, the structures exposed a little bit more clearly so we can understand how to rebuild them um, and to rebuild them in a way that can um, uplift the health of all. Um, and what COVID has shown us in the last year or 20 months or so, is that if we don't concern ourselves with the health of all, um, eventually the health of no one, <laughs> it, it becomes very hard for anyone to be really healthy or vibrant and thriving um, in the ways in which we all would like to be. So that is how I see the book. Um, it was a real joy to write this book and a real challenge to write this book. Um, but with Raj, Raj's just incredible mind and storytelling, um, it's been a, it's, it was a quite an amazing journey. Thank you. Well, I want to definitely come back to so many things you've said amongst which, you know, um, that we're all affected uh, by this, but, but presumably quite differently, depending on where you live in the world and who you are. Um, and we'll go into that in a second. But I, I wanted to ask you, uh, and maybe Raj, you could pick up on this about why you wanted to co-author this book. How did you both come together to work on this? And I guess, why was it important to you personally to write it? Um, well, th thank you, Miriam. I mean, the, the main, we've been friends for ages. Uh, uh, Ruben and I uh, met, I think, first at, at a, a protest uh, against industrial agriculture, where I was dressed up as a genetically modified tomato, uh, and Rupa was playing in her magic band, Rupa and the April Fishes, uh, which is you know, a, a band that has sent Rupa touring through dozens of countries around the world. Um, and uh, you, you know, I'm, I've been doing a lot of work in the food system and particularly around activism uh, uh, for peasant movements and for frontline communities fighting hunger. Uh, and so for both of us, we've had the opportunity to uh, you know, to be welcomed into communities in ways that are not about, you know, sort of journalist with notepad or, you know, professor asking questions, but rather as comrades, uh, as peers coming in to learn and to share music and to share knowledge and to share experience. Um, and the reason uh, that we were, were able to write this book together in the way that we did um, was that you know, this was a sort of a book that neither of us would have been able to write alone. Um, uh, I mean, I, I certainly don't have the medical expertise. I don't have the, the deep experience that Rupa has with indigenous communities uh, in what is currently called the United States and beyond. Uh, and you know, I, I was bringing in the, the, the sort of history uh, and the political ecology work uh, that I've been doing for ages, but was learning along the way that a lot of my interests in the food system were also it turns out interests in medicine and interests in healthcare because uh, you know it, it is only in this particular colonial capitalist society that food and medicine are two different things. In every other civilization that's worth a damn, they're they're uh, fungible. They are uh, part of a, the same kind of continuum of knowledge. So you know we 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 came together and we we, we were having conversations about. Uh, some of these ideas for, for a while, and it crystallized you know, a, a couple of years back that, that actually there was something to be said here in this moment around colonialism, capitalism, health and food. Uh, and we realized that 
uh, you know, inflammation was a really good way of tracking, uh, as Ruba was saying, not just the metaphor, but the physics, uh, the, the actual sort of biochemistry of uh, our body's reactions to a colonial capitalist world and, you know, the, the, the white supremacy and domination that comes along with that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so honored that, that Rupa uh, agreed to write this book with me because it, it's uh, it, the, the sort of product of precisely this, these sort of circles of learning and unlearning that we need for our future in which we surrender our individual egos to, uh, you know, the, the creation of a broader kind of knowledge and purpose. So it sounds like you're coming together was in a way itself part of a resistance to the disaggregation of knowledge into different categories and the idea that we need to think about problems maybe more systemically. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, let's let's dive in. You argue very powerfully in the book that the story of the diagnosis of sickness in the West is broken. And that part of the issue is where we begin that story, or perhaps even how we begin that story. So how are you seeking to tell the story of sickness differently? When we look at um, the revolutions in Western medical thought about identifying, you know, the causal um, pathways for illness, um, there was these, these moments where we kind of got closer and closer to what's actually making people sick. And um, while the last few centuries have really narrowed down on, you know, from, you know, the, the individual to an organ system, to a, to a gene, to a protein, to a, you know, derangements in these, these ways going more and more reductionist, um, we have left out going the opposite direction and seeing, you know, how, um, these um, systems that we have constructed around our bodies might be influencing those other processes. Um, and so in the you know, 18th century, there was an you know, advance, or in the 1800s, an advance in understanding um, physiology um, where fever, let's say, in, in, in Western medical understanding was identified as a phenomenon in, a, in the body. Um, that was coming from an irritation in an organ system or inflammation in organ systems. And that understanding by the French physiologist um, Boussai really revolutionized our understanding of medicine. Okay, something was happening in the body that we just had to address um, and then we could alleviate the fever or the sickness. Um, and what we show is that actually, yes, that is true and important, but there are phenomena that are happening around the body um, in the environments that are um, around the body that are created through social structures that are having actually a more um, powerful impact on um, how we get sick. And there've been twin studies that look at chronic inflammatory disease, which are the major, all the diseases we suffer from as industrialized people, um, cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, um, all the big ones I see as a hospital medicine doctor, and most people go to the doctor for, are diseases where inflammation is playing an important role. And these chronic, um, uh, these diseases of chronic sterile inflammation, um, it, it is more predictive, your environment is more predictive of getting these diseases than your genetics. Um, so the way that we've been focusing on individuals and individual genes and, and those predispositions is actually the wrong way of addressing these kinds of diseases. It won't address 
why we see epidemic levels like rises of diabetes around the world and inflammatory bowel disease and you know, now non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is an inflammatory phenomenon, is the leading cause of end-stage liver and cirrhosis in the United States, surpassing alcohol use. Um, and so why are these things happening? Um, and so you need to locate the disease, the cause, the pathogenic cause of disease in the system around the body. And that is what uh, Raj and I really take the science of inflammation of what, what the science is showing us, the biomedical science, and, and and provide a structure and, and, and a way of understanding. So for us, and um, what the science is saying is that inflammation in the body is a sign of damage, is a sign of the body responding to damage to restore and heal the body. It's a healing response. But when the damage of our environment is ongoing as it is with toxic um, exposures like racism, daily acts of racism that um, black folks experience in any society that's been organized by white supremacy, um, so that kind of damage is chronic and ongoing and leads to a chronic inflammatory response. Um, and so that is, that is the, you know, if we want to be effective at treating these diseases, we have to actually start restructuring the world around our bodies. Thank you. So actually maybe Raj, you could pick up on the systems idea, which I think is, is maybe the piece of the puzzle that's missing right in the conversation around health. Um, what are some of the systems that we're ignoring in our current conversation about health? And sometimes I suppose when we think about systems, people will find that like a very overwhelming way of coming at a problem. You know, it's like, well, it's so big. How do I fit into the solution? So firstly, what are some of those systems? And is it helpful to use systems as a way to think about the solution? Um, absolutely. Let me start, start with that second part. Yes, um, you know, part of uh, the, the current problem with the way that we think about our bodies and medicine, as Rupa was saying, is that we have been schooled into thinking that uh, our, you know, because it feels like uh, we have an inflammation, an itis in our tonsils, for example, uh, that, that that's something that's all about us. Uh, and, you know, we, we'll, we'll go, we'll have our tonsils removed, and that will be, you know, that'll be that. Uh, but uh, we're coached into thinking that because the site of the, the disease is this, this body, uh, that its cause must be there too, and the, the, the level of thinking must only, you know, orbit this body and can never look beyond it. Um, and th that's to blame the victim. You know, we are uh, living diseases that are structural, and yet we are being denied the possibility of rearranging our society's uh, dominant structures because part of the, the, the structural conceit is to make us believe that we are atomic individuals uh, responsible only for our own health and not uh, subject to these broader structural forces. So in fact, if we don't talk about structures, we're leaving an important and in fact, a vital path of healing on the table. Uh, and that's part of the disease is to, to ignore the structural problems. So let's talk about these structural problems in very specific ways. I mean, um, you, you know, we, we talk in the book about colonial capitalism. I mean, colonialism is, you know, is ancient. Uh, the Romans did it uh, and they've, you know, they've granted us words in our language that we still use, like immunity, for example. Uh, to be uh, immune is to be not subject to the same kinds of duties that, for example, Roman citizens were. And so Romans talked about conquered people as immune, uh, and that is, uh, not subject to the same kinds of duties of, as, as Rome. The munera are duties in Latin. So uh, to, you know, we, we carry this idea of self and other and 
you know, uh, the, the idea of sort of strangeness and not subject to the same kinds of rules as us, even in our language of medicine. So colonialism is old and we, we, we the vestiges of it are, are with us today. Uh, cap colonial capitalism uh, is 600 years old, as we was mentioning. Uh, that comes with uh, not just sort of ideas about who's free and who isn't and who can be, uh, uh, you know, subject to imperial rule, but really specific ideas about exploitation, about whose bodies uh, can suffer, who's allowed to think and who is allowed to feel and who's not allowed to do either of those things. Uh, and in particular, colonial capitalism needed to put the rest of the world to work. And so it came up with this, this a uh, very sophisticated idea of uh, society and nature. Within society, uh, usually it was propertied white Christian men, and uh, that you know, the, the membership of society has been enlarged uh, over the centuries through a great deal of struggle. Um, and it's still you know, expanding so that you know, it was only 1924 here in the United States that indigenous people, for example, got the right to vote. Uh, and we're still obviously fighting for voters' rights and rights for people of color here in, in Texas, the only state in America that fought for slavery twice. Uh, but uh, we also have, uh, you know, in, in the expansion of society, society licenses you to do things to nature. And so if it is uh, indigenous people, people of color, um, the rest of the web of life in nature, you can put that to work and you can, you know, you can make it uh, work until it dies, you can burn it, uh, and you can inflame the planet that way. And the, the problem with uh, you know, understanding the world in, in, in this kind of way is that the, uh, the, the, the academic disciplines, the disciplines that we have, whether it's economics or medicine, are part of that colonial capitalist uh, system. And so, you know, we can see it today in something as painful as, as something like dermatology, for example. Um, in the book, we talk about uh, the uh, you know, racism within uh, medicine in the United States. Uh, and you know, the, 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 there was a, a study from uh, 2016 uh, where 58% you know, so of the general white US population believe that black skin is thicker than white skin. And that's not at all true, uh, but that belief is the consequence of, uh, of colonial capitalism. And you know, the, the belief that black skin is, is thicker than white skin, this, this unfounded belief was also shared by 40% of first year white medical students. And they still, 20% of those students still believed it after four years of medicine. Uh, now that, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, that, that consequence in 2016 of, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, you know the, the persistence of this uh, absolutely unfounded belief owes everything to a long history of uh, colonial exploitation in which certain kinds of people could be owned uh, and enslaved and, uh, and in which white supremacy was the cognate of that way of thinking and that way of being in society so that we're still living with those consequences of this old structure. And without talking about that structure, this 20% you know, of white medical students in their fourth year of medical school thinking that black skin is thicker than white skin is inexplicable. But if we do talk about the structure, then not only can we explain why this happens, but we can stop it. Thank you. So I, I thought that was really interesting also in the book how, um, you know, colonialism, which is so often thought of as something in the past that, and even for those who acknowledge its impact today, right? For a lot of people, it's like colonialism is, is in the past. Yes, it had some terrible effects, but it's something in the past. But, but in the book, you cite 70 countries with indigenous people 
whose uh, lives are under threat from colonial expansion today. Um, and I wanted, uh, I was wondering whether you first, first of all, you might help us understand kind of these struggles, these particular active struggles against colonialism. But secondly, uh, for those who think colonialism in, is in the past, can you highlight, highlight how it is in fact very much of the present and how it's connected to making us ill today? Who is, what does colonialism today look like and who exactly is getting ill from it? Everybody, everybody is getting ill from it. Um, if you look at these wildfires, um, the, the burning of our planet, the droughts all over the world, um, the heating of our oceans, the, the slowing of the um, Atlantic uh, ocean currents, um, everyone is gonna be impacted, but black and brown and indigenous people are getting hit already hard, fast. Um, but no one, no one can escape this. And that's why it's critical that we all understand the roots and that we understand that um, being white or being privileged does not somehow um, get you a, an escape card out of this, this, this tragedy that's unfolding in front of our eyes. Um, when you said this, this question about you know, systems level thinking and um, how we feel overwhelmed by it. Yeah. What we try to offer in the book is an understanding of ourselves as systems within systems. So that even our, the architecture of understanding our bodies in these you know, anatomically discrete systems, and we organize the book through these chapters, you know, and by the end, we're you know, making these chapters fluid, these systems fluid and understanding that, oh yes, the nervous system is part of the immune system, is part of the endocrine system. And, um, and so, Part of that requires um, a death of the ego, a, a dissolution of our understandings of our individual selves, and really a, um, a, a time, and this is more you know, speaking metaphysically, if you will, um, of understanding our interrelatedness and connections to each other, um, and that we have all suffered from this. So in order for Europe to colonize the world, it first had to colonize its women and get them out of the forests and out of the, um, out of the work of tending the herbal medicine um, heritage of Europe. Um, and a lot of that knowledge was lost in the enclosure of the forests and the establishment of um, capitalism in, in Europe mm -hmm. and who suffered through that and what knowledges were lost through that. Um, and you see that persist today, you know, in the United States where poor white people, and I, I give an example of a patient who is from Alabama, a poor white woman um, who suffered inflammatory disease that none of us could figure out um, because she had been poisoned from where she grew up in the Tennessee um, River Valley watershed. Um, and that, and that these, uh, the poisoning that she experienced from the corporations that have been dumping mercury and um, forever chemicals into this watershed. These corporations are part of a lineage that has been destroying the earth all over the place. So whether you're an indigenous person in the Amazon um, dealing with the toxic waste from Chevron, like the uh, Warani people, or whether you're you know, poor white folks in Alabama who just happen to grow up where the groundwater has been polluted, it's, it's affecting everybody. Um, and that's where we have to start really um, going beyond these um, divisions that especially, you know, right wing 
fascists around the world are trying to divide us, trying to divide Hindu from Muslim and white folks or immigrants from non-immigrants. And these, um, these efforts um, seek to keep in control those entities that are making health impossible for all of us. Um, so yes, systems level thinking is critical right now because we can't actually address the nature of the problems that we're dealing with without it. Um, and it's a great time to engage in those practices that will help us move past this individualistic um, obsession with wellness and start getting a, a much broader understanding of what, what wellness means and to dissolve these false narratives, one of them being whiteness, like what is whiteness? Um, it, it, it's a power construct. And so how do we dissolve power, those power constructs that are limiting most entities' abilities to be healthy and thrive on this earth? So it's really interesting speaking, well, listen, listening to you because I, as a person of faith, as, as a Muslim myself, it's interesting to hear you talk about the death of the ego and to me, I often think about how uh, a lot of what's been called Western progress has been side by side with the view that religion is, you know, archaic and has no place when actually a lot of religious philosophy encourages a belief in a sense of interconnectedness and a relationship and a level of humility when it comes to the natural world. Um, does, does faith, spirituality, any of that fit into your uh, systems approach? We, we talk a lot about cosmology. Uh, colonialism and uh, capitalist colonialism comes with a cosmology of domination uh, in which, again, society gets to dominate uh, everything. And, and of course, within society, there are these hierarchies of sort of, again, uh, you know, sort of white propertied Christianity at the top. Uh, and then everything else is uh, you know, a, a lapse from that in, in various degrees. Um, but we certainly, um, you know, we, we talk a lot in the book about uh, other kinds of cosmology that recognize not only uh, that there are uh, ways, you know, that th there, there are ways of being in the world that involve creation stories that are uh, not just uh, about uh, you know, biblical approaches to, to creation, uh, but also understanding uh, that, you know, you know we, we tell stories about Sky Woman, for example, uh, about uh, the, the, the gifts of food and medicine that are embodied in the stories, uh, sorry, in the strawberries that, that, that Sky Woman uh, gave the first people. Um, and understanding that in fact our concepts of personhood are very limited uh, under you know uh, under colonial capitalism that, that actually we need to pluralize our sense of who a person is uh, and to understand the web of life's life around us is filled with people uh, to whom we owe responsibilities and duties and those co you know, the cosmologies that allow us to see that are ones that can break uh, the, this 600-year-old uh, approach to, uh, you know, to, to understanding who is worthy of respect and who is capable of exploiting, you know, capable of being exploited. Um, I would also, I would also yeah, add that, no, no, sorry, that, um, that uh, all of these religions, you know, around the world have been and can be used as a tool for domination. And what we are looking at in our book um, is how systems of domination create damage and inflammation. Um, so whether you're, you know, you know, Buddhist, um, you know, you can still be, you know, enacting horrific genocide. Um, so it's not so much to reach to religion or, and you know, an organizing that kind of organizing principle. But um, we do share that those 
cosmologies that are most effective at lowering inflammation, um, or I should say in societies where um, there is an absence of inflammatory disease and an abundance of biodiversity, both inside and outside the body, are um, societies where the, the cosmologies are not organized through a monotheistic structure. They're organized through a structure that in, um, it recognizes the value and um, the value of each entity, whether it, it's called a, a, a mountain um, or a river or salmon. Um, and so when we look at the effectiveness of those uh, uh, cosmologies, like right now, Winona LaDuke is on horseback to ride to stop the Line 3 pipeline um, that is going through Anishinaabe territory and, um, you know, not only threatening the food and water of their people, um, this is in Minnesota, what is so-called Minnesota in the United States, um, but, but it, you know, it threatens the planet. And the effectiveness of these indigenous grandmothers in lowering greenhouse gases in US and Canada has been the most effective thing in the last 10 years, more effective than any of these climate promises from these politicians, um, because they're not um, accountable to, you know, stakeholders or shareholders, they're accountable to the earth and to the future generations. Um, and so it's that mentality that, you know, is they've always been systems level thinkers. And so it's not hard for people who live like that um, to think that way. It's hard for those of us who've been indoctrinated in a Western medical perspective um, to think that way. And this is how Western medicine actually participates in the ongoing violence, um, because we can name the structural causes of disease. But rarely do you see in the medical journal, well, then the, the, the diagnosis is this, and then the treatment is to dismantle these structures um, that we need to actually start, um, you know, taking apart class and race structures so that people can be healthy. Um, we don't see that next step, um, which has always been really fascinating to me. Um, I'm guessing there's a vested reason why we don't have that conversation. Do you locate it simply in a sort of lacuna or a failure in Western philosophical thought, or is there something more nefarious at work? I mean, it can be both, right? <laughs> that, that uh, in fact, you know, that, that these, uh, that there's a, a way of being implicated in domination that's not terribly comfortable, and it would be easier uh, for us to just buy a copy of White Fragility, you know, work our way through that and feel like we've done our, uh, done our duty. Uh, and of course, there is, in fact, quite a lot of profits to be made in diversity training and uh, the sort of ritual pieties of thinking that you're doing something about racism because you know you've set aside some money to do something about racism but you, you don't really want to take that too seriously because that would it, it, you know, involve sacrificing some privilege and no one wants to do that so you know what's the next best thing the next best thing is to give you know uh, to, to, to read white fragility and do its workbook uh, have a diversity consultant come in and then pat yourself on the back and away you go uh, rather than committing to the flames uh, precisely the kinds of privilege that uh, and you know sacrificing the structures that have put us in this invidious position so you know th th there are ways in which 
uh, you know, within uh, you know, the, the Western philosophical tradition, um, that it's, I mean, it's just very hard to get off the ground, though some you know, practitioners did it, you know, people like Franz Fanon, who was also a practicing uh, psychiatrist and medic, was active in process of decolonizing medicine, but also realized that ultimately that, that in the end, you have to go outside the regimes, particularly of property, of private property that uh, capitalism has set up. And you know, if, if there's a sort of cognate of, of white supremacy, it is the ability to own shit, right? Uh, and that, uh, you know, for, for, for Fanon, uh, you know, ending one was tantamount to ending the other, and you couldn't do either of those things within uh, the hospital. So, you know, again, this is to say there are, uh, there's, a, there's a huge industry that profits from not addressing racism while pretending that it does. Uh, it's very hard within uh, you know, systems of capitalist, uh, colonialist thought to, to take on things like private property, and, and people have tried. Um, but there are, there is nonetheless an outside, there's always been an outside to this self-contained system of thinking that's always been resisted. For 600 years, it's been resisted. And at the, the frontiers of that resistance, as Rupa was saying, there are uh, already and always have been lessons about how to undo that system. So let's talk about COVID. It's the elephant in the room. You've written a book about healthcare at a time where the global community is afflicted by this virus. Um, I want to talk about how the systems approach that you advocate for might give us a better understanding of COVID. Um, the mainstream narrative, of course, is that the, the virus um, came from a laboratory where, um, well, may have come from a laboratory or otherwise may have come from a wet market. These two of the dominant views. Um, and uh, and so, so how would the systems approach make us think differently about how COVID came about? Was it just, you know, this is what happens in wet markets when humans and animals interact. It's just a, it's just a sad thing that can happen um, has happened to humans throughout history? Well, I think that if you look at how our society has been organized around the world through, um, through global capitalism, um, COVID is, has traveled along those same routes um, that we saw like with cholera, we talk about that in the book, that the, the movement of disease along these trade, trade routes um, is something that we've seen before. Um, and what we, we, we see with COVID is that it really explodes in places of incarceration, both, figure, not, both structural and literal. Um, so whether you're um, you know, forced to work in meat packing plants in the United States in the agricultural sector as our undocumented, largely undocumented population is working, um, those are places where COVID was hit hard in the nursing home where elders are warehoused in our jails and prisons. Um, and in, in, in the you know, working class where people were forced to be exposed. Um, so if you look at, you know, if, if incarceration is the rule in terms of COVID spread, um, fugitivity and escape is the, is the answer. So how do we um, remove ourselves from these incarcerating structures? How do we start to abolish the systems that force the exposures of predominantly brown, black and indigenous people? Um, and those are the folks who, you know, in, in, in societies like ours in the United States and same in UK, um, that's, those are the fault lines that we're seeing um, COVID have its most toxic impact. If we also realize that the social structures around the body are priming the body for a exaggerated response um, through inflammation, we understand that COVID is a, a test to the system. Mm -hmm. um, and bodies that have been 
um, oppressed chronically over centuries are having worse outcomes. And that's really a, an opportunity to see that how toxic social oppression is um, over, especially over centuries intergenerationally. Now, this is not to argue that, that those bodies are somehow biologically essentially worse off than other bodies, but it's to condemn um, the systems of structural racism as a form of biological warfare against, um, you know, against people who've been oppressed through colonialism for 600 years. Um, and so for me, the systems approach to dealing with COVID is to enact things like universal basic income. So everyone can stay home. Um, and, and so that people can reprioritize, you know, how to take care of their families. It's to offer educational opportunities in many different sizes, shapes, and flavors um, so that families can understand what their risk is based on history and based on where they are in the um, structures of power. Um, and it's also to start to build on, you know, what community immunity really looks like for different groups um, so that people are empowered through their food systems, through their health systems um, to have access to healthcare um, and really relevant healthcare to the communities that are impacted. Um, it's, to, it's to start to develop those, those structures and systems. What we're seeing right now is like mask, vaccinate, um, stay away from each other. Um, and these are all important things um, on an immediate, um, like, yes, we should mask, yes, we should vaccinate. Um, but will these ultimately solve um, the problem of this pandemic and the next one that's coming? No. In order to make ourselves more resilient in the face of those challenges, we need to start restructuring our societies. And that's, you know, ultimately what we talk about in our book. Um, and Raj, if I could pick you up on, on this, because obviously the overrepresentation of people of color among the acute victims of uh, COVID, uh, among the deaths um, in COVID numbers, um, has been the subject of much debate. Um, and in fact, a sort of weird, almost um, uh, neo um, I would say uh, eugenic view that there are some people who are just more resistant or less resistant seem to have emerged because maybe there hasn't been a conversation about why exactly we're seeing that overrepresentation. Obviously, uh, Rupi, you've touched on it already, but can we just get into some of the detail? Like, what is what are the what are the actual living circumstances? We've talked about obviously racism, experiencing racism as as a, as a form of day-to-day um, -day, uh, cause potent, uh, of, inf of inflammation. But what are some of the other uh, factors that that we should have in mind? Well, I mean, if if you've been uh, you know, living for six hundred years in a society, but picks certain people and decides that their bodies are, are okay to subject to more stress over generations. Uh, and you pick those people on the grounds of race for sure, but also class. Um, and you designate certain people as being able to handle the stress of, for example, toxic loans. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of payday loans that we have here in the United States where the working class has to, you know, panic before they get their, uh, their next paycheck. And so uh, you'll borrow $200 only to, to repay, you know, $600 a little later on. Uh, and those kinds of interest rates are, are what, you know, the, separate you from losing your home or not being able to feed your family. Uh, those kinds of ongoing stresses are 
absolutely part of what it is that primes the body for worst cases of COVID. And then, of course, you know, you've got, you know, we're all now familiar with the, the term comorbidity. Um, why is it, though, that uh, people of color are disproportionately represented in uh, co cohorts of people with comorbidities? Does it have anything perhaps to do with the fact that the food industry targets communities of people of color and low income communities for particularly the marketing of obesogenic products? Uh, and then you know, all of a sudden, we're surprised that because the food industry has really gone after, uh, you know, uh, children, uh, children of color, uh, that all of a sudden uh, those children have higher rates of comorbidities, higher rates of metabolic syndrome, higher rates of uh, cardiovascular disease and certain kinds of cancers because of their exposure to a toxic food system that has profited from them and the labor of their parents for centuries. So, you know, the, the, the existence of these comorbidities is not an accident. Uh, seven out of the 10 worst paying jobs in America are in the food system. Uh, and, you know, the, the lowest paying of those is, uh, you know, minimum wage here for tipped workers uh, who earn more than $30 a month in, in tips is $2.13 an hour. Uh, and again, disproportionately, people of color and women in those jobs, uh, and then all of a sudden look at whose bodies end up uh, in, in the pyre of COVID, and then say, well, you know, it's, it's white supremacy, you know, it's just because white people are, you know, richer and better off and, you know, and more able to fight this virus. That's bullshit. Uh, and, and I think, again, the, the stories of systemic analysis allow us to identify that and uh, as Rupa was saying step up to make systemic change because this isn't the sort of thing that I mean this, this is the other thing that's very interesting about the the sort of treatment uh, of COVID right that we've, we've got all this um, you know, the wellness uh, you know uh, juicers telling us that, that COVID vaccines are bad and that uh, masks are silly uh, and that well, you know what you need to do is just uh, take horse dewormer and everything's going to be fine uh, yeah. the rise of that individualist approach to treating COVID uh, is also a cognate of you know, I mean it, it, you I mean it's overwhelmingly white folk uh, and middle middle class white folk in particular who are driving that trend uh, and again the, the the link between whiteness individualism and property uh, again appears is, uh, not just in the, the, the origins of the, the, the disease and its spread, but also in the way that we're talking about its treatment. Is whiteness making us sick? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and the planet. Um, and so it's a good time to abolish whiteness. Um, and it's important not to hear that not as abolish white people. Um, I'm married to one, love him very much. Um, I love my white family. Um, but I, I, I situate them in their ancestries, in their Irish ancestries. My husband's family had to escape <laughs> Ireland and come to the US because they were involved in starting the IRA and they were fighting colonialism over there. Um, and so to understand that, you know, these legacies of oppression and violence aren't um, simply about the color of, our, color of our skin or concepts like whiteness. Um, so it's, I would say more than whiteness, it's a mentality of domination. It's a will to power that's, that's killing so many people and making the planet uninhabitable for our children. And that's what needs to stop. Um, and so it's a great time to look to other um, groups around the world who have got this, um, got this down and they're, they've been living in ways that advance um, health in a holistic way for thousands of years, and not as a way to romanticize or co-opt those, um, those systems of knowledge, but to uplift them and share them the way we do other science that works. 
Um, the way we do the science of vaccination, the way we do the science of um, understanding how agroecology um, is a much better system to feed the world and take care of the water and the soil and the people. Um, so it's, you know, it's important to push back on these dominant narratives that are ineffective. I mean, if we haven't seen anything, we've seen how ineffective <laughs> they are this year. How many people have to die before we, um, before we wake up? Um would you describe the book as a manifesto? And if so, what would you say that you're calling for very clearly? It is a manifesto to redefine health as a um, collective phenomenon. And it is a call to end the systems of domination that have infected the world um, with colonial capitalism and to bring about new economies of care to repair and care this world and our relationships in it um, and through that through that work we will we will be less inflamed thank you i know that you've got to head off shortly let's go to our quick fire round if that's all right um just before you do what is your definition definition of whiteness maybe we can take um each of you in turn to answer one raj do you want to kick off what's your definition of whiteness um it's uh, the uh the 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 stories and uh, relationships of power that accompany those stories that uh, allow certain uh, classes and certain blocks of uh, groups in society uh, to tell stories that allow the domination of people who fall outside that category. Rupa, what is the root of racism? The root of racism is a will to power. Um, it's the same root of Christian supremacy and any other kind of supremacy. Um, and I would say that whiteness is a myth um, and a dangerous and and an unhealthy one. <laughs> Raj, what is the opposite of whiteness? Love. Uh, I mean, I, I think that there's there's a radical care uh, that uh, is, again, uh, I mean, it, it takes work to, to make whiteness happen. And what we're talking about in Inflamed is the opposite of that, a revolution of care. Rupa, do you want to come in on that? The opposite of whiteness? A revolution of care. Great. Um, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I think it can help to uh, locate the the history to understand the history, um, but I don't think it's a useful framework to to entrench or persist in. I think it's important to expose it as a construct um, that can be deconstructed. And final one, Raj, is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view, and is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? Um. I think that what we need is a plurality of stories and cosmologies. Uh, and uh, but the way that what race means today is uh, uh, about myths of domination and structures of domination. Uh, I would like a, a world in which we have many cultures, uh, but no supremacy. Thank you so much. Um, I know you've got to get going. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rupa Maria and Dr. Raj Patel. If people want to connect with your work and your ideas, would you like to direct them to anywhere in particular? I would love to direct them to the deepmedicinecircle.org, which is a nonprofit worker-directed woman of color led entity that we formed to do this work of caring and repairing. And any uh, booksellers of preference? 
oh, your local independent bookstore. Um, they've, they've, uh, they're important parts of our community and we're very keen to support them. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much once again for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us and for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.